0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers. Committed to enhancing the driving experience with vehicles like the 2023 Sequoia, with its all new design and durability to take adventures on and off the road. Learn more at toyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.
1: The governor issues a heat emergency order affecting California energy use.
2: And let me just make this crystal clear. Uh, We failed to predict and plan these shortages and that's simply unacceptable.
1: I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. This is KPBS Midday Edition. What to expect from a democratic national convention amid the pandemic? So they need party unity, they need a strong message, and they have to introduce the candidates and hopefully have no coupons. Sendegg's bold and very expensive plan for transit and more in our region. And a study center on poet Robert Frost opens in our downtown library. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Sally Ride Science, presenting Women in Leadership, Featuring panelists Ina Garten, Michelle Hanabusa, and Margot Lee Shetterly, sharing their stories and discussing ways women can lead a better future. May 23rd on campus. Tickets at sallyridescience.edu.
1: As California remains in the grip of a prolonged heat wave, Governor Gavin Newsom signed an emergency proclamation aimed at freeing up more energy capacity and reducing the need for rolling blackouts. The blackouts are compounded by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and affected thousands of households across the state over the weekend. At his press conference today, Newsom also blasted the independent energy agencies overseeing the state's energy sector. He cited their failure to anticipate and warn against service disruptions over the weekend, calling them, quote, unacceptable and unbefitting of California. Newsom said he held an all-hands meeting with top energy advisors and the heads of agencies on the heat-induced energy shortages.
2: You can't control the weather, but you can prepare uh, for the weather events. And let me just make this crystal clear. Uh, We failed to predict and plan these shortages, and that's simply unacceptable. Uh, I am the governor. I am ultimately accountable and will ultimately take responsibility, have taken, I assure you, responsibility, to immediately address this issue uh, and move forward to make sure this simply never happens again here in the state of California.
1: In a letter to the California Independent System Operator, the State Public Utilities Commission and the California Energy Commission, Newsom demanded an investigation into why residents and government leaders failed to get timely warnings and why actions weren't taken to ensure a flow of reliable power. He said we can expect more and more of these heat waves as climate change worsens here and across the world and that the state needs to find ways to better deal with heat going forward.
3: The rolling power outages put tens of thousands of San Diegans in the dark last Friday and Saturday. Here to reflect on the governor's response to the blackouts is energy analyst Bill Powers. He's principal of Powers Engineering and chairman of the nonprofit CLEAR California Local Energy Advancing Renewables. Bill, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So now, what is your reaction to the governor's announcement today of of steps to increase energy reliability?
4: Well, I I think he was right to complain about not having advanced warning of blackouts and that there's absolutely no reason those blackouts should have occurred in any case. And the, the fact that they did occur was really a failure, I think, of the independent system operator.
3: Yes, he did say that he was taking responsibility, but he is implying criticism of the grid operator, right, CalISO?
4: Yes, and this was a failure of the ISO, in my opinion. Until we see the data, it's going to be difficult to, to ex- say exactly what happened. But keep in mind, for those of us that have lived in San Diego for years, that we've had a number of big blackouts in our community over the last 10 to 12 years One was in September of 2011. There was another that occurred in 2010, which were either caused by a simple error by the ISO or by a failure to anticipate that when you have a heat wave coming, you need to operate the grid in a somewhat different manner than they typically do, which is just whoever gives us the lowest price delivers the power.
3: Aha. Uh-huh. Well, you told the New York Times that there should have been enough energy to meet the peak demands on Friday and Saturday. So so what do you think caused CalISO to call for these rolling blackouts?
4: I think that the you need to operate the grid in a different way, in a heat wave, than you do on a typical day with typical demand. It's fine to operate the grid based on lowest price most of the time. But when you're faced with a heat wave, you have among that capacity that is at the disposition of the ISO to dispatch, you have some older units that require a day to come up to speed. You can't just turn them on and get power from them. So you have to anticipate Thursday midday that Friday midday, you're gonna have a heat wave begin and you're gonna need some of your, your backup units that are more expensive to run, up and running at full power at that time.
3: But we did Mike. have quite a bit of notice, didn't we, of this heat wave?
4: Well, that's, I mean, that's the irony of all this is that the governor was complaining that ISO and the people of California didn't get warning. Any California can go onto the ISO website and look at their graphic for 24 hours in advance and see that it's a pretty accurate 24 hour in advance forecast and the heat waves coming. So you need to get your ducks in a row and those units that take a long time to come up to speed need to be coming up to speed the day before. And I don't think that happened. I think there, we have all this capacity on paper that's ready to go, but it's only ready to go if you have the presence of mind to get it rolling in time to use it when you need
3: it. Do you think that there could be something about the energy pricing strategies that uh, had an impact on when blackouts were called for?
4: Absolutely. I mean, that the idea, what we saw in just in our neighbourhood is that los angeles department of water and power a public utility subject to the same heat had enough reserves available if they were actually sending power to iso during the heat wave and why is that well that's probably because ladwp is prior to prioritizing reliability for its users over lowest price during special conditions like heat waves and the iso is almost certainly not doing that and so LADWP is not leaving assets on the table that won't be available at an instant, whereas I think the ISO is, and that the the good news that will come out of these rolling blackouts is the whole state is now looking and putting a bright light on ISO's operations, and I think ISO is far too wedded to this idea that uh, this ideology that you always want to get the lowest price, 8,760 hours a year it's fine to go for the lowest price most of the time, but not during heat waves.
3: So it's a lot to do with market forces. I mean, I have to ask you, you are a staunch advocate for moving to sustainable energy, which we must do to avert climate change disaster. And these blackouts naturally raise the question of whether our changing energy mix is less reliable to meet peak demand. You know, what can you say to those who question the ability of sustainable energy like wind and solar to meet our needs?
4: Well it's they we need to set the framework of what happened Friday and Saturday that the ISO is responsible for projecting the expected average peak load for the year the Friday peak was less than the average projected peak and so that the whole system is designed to project a peak accurately conservatively and then have adequate reserves available to cover that under virtually any circumstance so The peak was actually projected, the average peak was projected to be somewhat higher than what we experienced on Friday. So for those of us that work in this business, it is inexplicable that there was any rolling blackout on Friday, even more inexplicable that there were any rolling blackouts on Saturday. And it's even questionable why they called stage alerts, stage one, two, and three, because we had the reserves. And so the idea that solar or wind or anything else, uh, that is... uh, it's a red herring i mean the system's designed to provide reliable power with a lot of solar with a lot of wind under these conditions somebody so what, dropped the ball and the person or persons that dropped it were at iso and So what I think would you like to have,
3: what would you important like to have for heard the, the for governor the
4: press to say to stay on it
3: good good what would you like to have heard the governor say today then
4: i would have liked to say that the uh, independent system operator is responsible for maintaining the flow of electricity under all foreseeable conditions. The conditions we experienced on Friday and Saturday were completely foreseeable, well within what we expected this summer. But for whatever reason, we didn't get the assets online to cover ourselves for that peak. And I wanna know why. And I'm going to have a, he did say he was going to have a report done that looks at ISO and Public Utilities Commission, Energy Commission, But what we've seen from these reports in the past is they peel back one or two layers of the onion, but they don't get deep enough to look at the institutional problems that expose us to these kinds of unexpected blackouts. It has nothing to do with climate change, what happened on Friday and Saturday. It has nothing to do with the availability or reliability of solar or wind. It has everything to do with mismanagement of the grid during a peak of
3: okay, well, something to keep our eye on. We've been speaking with energy analyst Bill Powers of Powers Engineering. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Alison. San Diego Gas and Electric is asking San Diegans to conserve power this week during the Flex Alert between 3 and 10 p.m. Here's SDG&E Communications Manager Denise Menard.
5: We know that we're definitely going to have this intense heat through Thursday, and if we as a collective don't come together and reduce the use of energy and, and the, the stress that we're putting onto the grid right now, then we could, have more, we could have more of these rolling outages.
3: And conservation means setting your thermostat to 78 degrees, turning off lights, unplugging appliances that aren't in use, and refraining from using major appliances. To see a map of SDG&E's planned power outages, go to sdgne.com outages.
1: a convention like no other. We've seen variations of that headline everywhere as the Democratic National Convention kicks off this evening, not from a big crowded arena in Milwaukee, but mostly with remote speeches due to the pandemic. Joining me to discuss how it figures to go down and what it means are Carl Luna, political science professor at Mesa College, and Will Rodriguez-Kennedy, chair of the San Diego County Democratic Party. Welcome to you
6: both. Thank you for having me. Good to be here.
1: Carl, is it really a convention like no other? Sure, there's not going to be the big crowd in the arena and the reporters with headphones wandering about, but political
2: conventions have been all TV affairs for a long time, right? That's true, uh, Mark, but this is a different sort because it's going to be a social media event, it's going to be virtual Uh, And its oddity might actually help it to attract viewers to it, plus the intensity of this campaign. Otherwise, it would be another ho-hum, regular, let's get out the troops sort of event.
1: And what are you expecting it will look like when you tune in tonight or anybody tunes in?
2: Well, what the Democrats don't want it to look like is something you'd get at three o'clock in the morning as an infomercial. They're trying to figure out a way to make it kind of a lively event with lots of videos and then uh, uh, powerhouse speakers coming in. Uh, to try to attract people. It could well be that in a summer where there hasn't been a lot of new programming, this might be interesting enough to get audience participation up.
1: And uh, Carl, the Biden-Harris tickets uh, head by double digits over Trump-Pence in the Washington Post poll today. CNN's got a a poll of polls out. They're up uh, nine points. That's uh, Biden and Harris. Can we expect a post-convention bump
2: on either side uh, this year, given the circumstances? You typically do see a post-convention bump of a couple of points, which will put them in uh, the, the Biden-Harris ticket, the farthest ahead at this point in the campaign that we've ever seen. But do remember Michael Dukakis in 88 was close to this level of being ahead and a bad fall did him in. And Will,
1: tell us uh, about the lineup now. Who are we expected to hear from?
6: You're going to expect to hear from a lot of very common names. You're gonna see uh, some of the leaders of the party, some of the uh, opponents uh, of the in, during the primary who, who are going to be speaking. Uh, obviously, uh, the big event is the, the, the presidential nominee and the vice presidential nominee. So Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden. Uh, but you'll hear from uh, the AOCs of the world as well as the Elizabeth Warrens the uh, and the Andrew Yangs um so it's going to be a wide a, a wide spectrum of the party what you'll also hear surprisingly is a number of republicans so john kasich from um, from ohio for example is speaking at a democratic national Conve- uh, convention which is sort of controversial for the for the on the democratic side but might but does show that the party is looking to broaden the amount of people who would who would be interested in our ticket
1: so kasich of course former uh, republican governor of ohio as you mentioned from ohio um, is that going to uh, maybe anger some of the progressives, uh, that wing of the party, because uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez gets all of one minute uh, in the schedule I looked at?
6: Yeah, it was not. It would not be a decision I would have made. Um, but I'm from California, so I'm trying to see. I, I'm trying to be uh, understanding that we live in the in a in a state that is very progressive, um, and so the 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 audience is not necessarily California. The audience is places like Ohio and that is a name that would be recognizable to an Ohio voter. Whether or not it will, be, uh, it will split or be divisive among our party, that's definitely something that we've seen. I, I'm not particularly happy about it, but the audience is the American people who are voting in places like Ohio, Florida, etc.
1: And uh, Will, Biden's scheduled to accept the party nomination Thursday night, the last night of the convention. What's the Democrats' message going to be besides four more years of Trump would be disastrous?
6: well it, it it seems like the the messages that uh that we want to build back better i believe is what uh they've been saying from the biden campaign and so what you will likely see is uh joe biden who comes from a, a you know pennsylvania sort of working class background. That's the voter I think that they're trying to target. They're trying to target the people who uh, switched to Trump from Obama in the 2016 election. Uh, We're talking about working class places like Ohio and Pennsylvania, but people who have been left behind by by this economy and who are still left behind by the economy that has been built by Trump, uh, which is made worse by the COVID-19 crisis and his failure to manage that properly.
1: And Carl, we've got uh, President Trump going to campaign this week, through various battleground states trying to take away as much of the limelight and the news cycle as he can as the Democrats have their convention. But uh, what do the Democrats have to do to get that message across? I mean, maybe one advantage of doing this all remotely is you're not going to have any disruptions on the floor, as we saw in 2016 with the Bernie bros not really keen on uh, Hillary Clinton's nomination.
2: Yeah, and uh, over that, you're not going to have the protests outside the convention hall. I think the Democratic nightmare would have been a repeat of Chicago 1968 because the Trump campaign is running on that. This is the most socialist left wing candidacy ever. And they're going to be the Republicans, the party of law and order. What the Democrats have to do is grab the narrative. They have to show why there's the case for getting rid of Donald Trump. They're going to spend a lot of time on that tonight. Kamala Harris is basically going to be their prosecutor in chief. But more importantly, they have to show unity of the party. Uh, and that's the issue, like you're gonna bring on a John Kasich. Uh, you've gotta reach out to anybody who wants to see a change in America. The Democratic Party has to present itself as the home of the never Trumpers, the Republicans to the Bernie Sanders progressives on the left. And that's a difficult group to get into the same room. If any of those groups don't show up on election day for the Democrats, Biden has a chance of losing. So they need party unity. They need a strong message and they have to introduce the candidates and hopefully have no full pause. And meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi
1: is expected to call the House back into session this week, which is extraordinary, given that not only is it summer hiatus, but they've got their own convention going on. But the concern is over President Trump's plans to overhaul the Postal Service, potential impact on the election. Uh, I'll, I'll throw this out as a jump ball question. Carl, first, uh, is that going to be a big focus at the
2: convention? Uh, the Democrats should jump on that because the narrative the Republicans are going to create is if they're ahead on election night, before mail-in ballots are counted and then they lose it in the mail-in battle ballots, it's all fraud. The president's solution is, oddly enough, is to defund the post office, which I'm comparing to burning down a bank to stop a robbery from occurring there. Uh, Democrats have an opportunity to hold the administration accountable and put the Republicans on the defense of going into the convention,
6: though probably President Trump will just ignore it and keep on trying to grab the headlines. The reality is, is that President Trump has taken an unusual attempt to, or an, the unusual strategy of undermining uh, our democratic institutions and also undermining things like the post office, which millions of Americans, particularly older Americans depend on for all sorts of things from getting checks to social security to correspondence with their families. Him defunding the USPS is is uh, to, I don't know, uh, make it harder for people to vote by mail is a threat to the republic. And frankly, the the fact that he's doing that should be concerning for any Republican who think who values American democracy. So that is something we should be talking about. We should absolutely hold the president ac- accountable. Uh, but I mean I, I, I don't want to get hyperbolic, but that is a treasonous act to like undermine the Democrat, the democracy of this country.
1: Okay, briefly at the end here, I want to ask you both, and we'll start with Will on this one, uh, what are you looking for specifically during the convention this week as you watch?
6: I am looking to see some inspiration come out of this ticket. Um, I am of the faction of the party who supported Senator Bernie Sanders. I am a pledged delegate for Senator Sanders in going into this convention. So I'm looking for something to to invigorate this ticket that is more than the anti-Trump ticket. We 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 have to as a party communicate to our voters that it's not just a vote against Trump, although that should be that should be enough considering that he is threatening the future of our republic, but also why it is better to vote for the Democratic Party, how our policies will help lift the middle cl- uh, the working class and the middle class, and how we will hold accountable uh, the wealthy and well connected who have run this country into a ditch. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm hopeful to get it, um, and I go in with. Uh, some cautious optimism. Uh, But I also go into this knowing that last time I went into a convention, we were pretty confident that we were going to win the the election. And this time I'm not so confident. We will have to fight to make sure that uh, Trump is not reelected in 2020.
1: And Carl, what are you looking for specifically this week?
6: I'm looking for,
2: uh, from a democratic perspective, uh, just, just what Will was saying, what's the big message that they will take into the fall campaign Remember the old adage, you run on three things, you're lucky to get two done. So what's gonna be the centerpiece when you cut through the platform beyond just anti-Trump and also the big, the the morning in America message, uh, how Democrats wanna restore America, uh, we're better than this, that sort of a message. Can they deliver on that? Meanwhile, from a Republican perspective, you gotta be looking to see what FUPAs they create. What is that moment that you can grab on and run endlessly on ads between now and November? If neither of those happen, it'll just be another normal little convention. And then we see what the Republicans come up with next week.
1: I've been speaking with Carl Luna, political science professor at Mesa College and Will Rodriguez Kennedy, chair of the San Diego County Democratic Party. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. KPBS will bring you NPR's live special coverage of the Democratic National Convention. That starts tonight, 6 p.m. here on KPBS.
2: We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive
6: needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
3: You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Allison St. John with Mark Sauer. It has the potential to transform San Diego County more radically than almost any other initiative, but as with any major change, it's controversial. The vision laid out for the region's future transportation system involves no freeway expansions and a huge investment in public transit. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen watched the presentation of the plan to the San Diego Association of Governments, or SANDAG, that's the people who will eventually vote on whether to put it on the ballot. Andrew, thank you for joining
7: us. Hi, Alison. Thank you.
3: So now this is a long-term vision setting the agenda for the next 30 years. If it gets approved and implemented, paint us a picture. How would it change our lives here in San Diego County? How would we get to work, for example?
7: Well, the vision is for a lot more people in the county to be living a multimodal lifestyle. So let's say you're a family of four. Your household might share one car instead of having two. Some days you might drive to work, other days you might carpool, some days you might take a shuttle or, or a shared bike, let's say, to a major transit station and then uh, maybe another shuttle or another shared bike on your way you know, to your final destination after you get off the train or bus. Uh, maybe you're running a little late and so you drive to work and you choose to pay for the HOV lane to avoid the worst of rush hour. And all of these choices are meant to be connected through what Sandeg calls the next OS, next operating system. So this would be some type of app or a platform interface that lets you know all of your different transportation options, how much they might cost, how long they'll take. And the whole system is supposed to be informed with real-time info on uh, traffic patterns, on the availability of fleet drivers, let's say those shuttles that are getting people to and from transit stations. And the overall goal is just to have more people living and working within walking distance or really close of a um, fast and frequent transit stop.
3: Now, the estimated cost of this vision is $177 billion over 30 years. How would it be paid for?
7: SANDAG is setting a goal of getting about $2 in state and federal aid for every local dollar that it spends. So it's possible that most of that money would actually come uh, from outside San Diego, but quite a bit of it would come from uh, local dollars. And part of this vision is that at some point, in the future the voters of san diego county would have to approve a sales tax increase Sandag tried this in 2016, and they only got a 57% majority when they needed a two-thirds. So, uh, you know, it's certainly a tall order. Anytime you're asking uh, voters for money, it's, uh, you know, more tax dollars. It's always a really difficult fight.
3: Yeah, so as you say, it is a, a tall order. And the mastermind behind this plan is Sandag Executive Director Hassan Ikrata. Here's what he said about it.
1: Since I got here, I saw a region that was ready for change a region that deserves the greatest transportation system and had the determination
0: to make it happen.
3: Now, it's worth pointing out at this point that this plan is not simply to make it easier to get to work and avoid gridlock. It's designed to slow climate change, which is an approaching crisis. But talk to us about who on the current Sendag board supports this vision and and who opposes it.
7: Yeah, well, just to to your point, climate change is really I would say the central motivating factor here. So SANDAG has tougher targets to hit with regards to reducing greenhouse gas emissions and vehicle travel in this current plan that they're working on compared to the last time that they wrote a plan in 2015. So the standards are getting diffi- more difficult. And Akrata said that you, we couldn't just take the previous plan, make some tweaks, and and have it meet state climate targets. Um, as far as the supporters, um, we uh, you know it was. Uh, Frankly, a pretty partisan divide. Um, there was uh, city San Diego City Council President Georgia Gomez spoke in favor of it. Uh, National City Mayor Alejandro Sotelo Solis also liked it. Both of them spoke to the equity component of this plan. So um, SANDAG really looked deep into some data to figure out which neighborhoods and which uh, populations are least likely to have access to good transportation options. And those were the areas where they tried to make the the biggest and earliest improvements. The skepticism we heard was from several people. Oceanside Deputy Mayor Jack Fowler actually made a reference to the Jetson and thought, well, the technology is going to improve. So maybe it'll just be like the Jetsons in the future and we won't need this big uh, expensive transit infrastructure. Um, We heard from San Marcos Mayor Rebecca Jones, uh, San Diego County Supervisor Jim Desmond. Both of them said, they, they neither said they outright opposed this vision. They just are not quite sure about the price tag. They think it's expensive. And Desmond in particular mentioned the 78 freeway. That's been a longtime goal of his to just get extra lanes on there. And so I think he wants to see some more details about um, this vision for a new network of toll roads and managed lanes in the county that um, might just basically change the lane configuration on some freeways. So he's kind of waiting to see what happens with that.
3: So it seems like there's a lot of resistance to it in the North County, among North County elected officials. Are there other elected officials who, who don't like this cutback on investment in roads
7: and widening roads? You know, she didn't speak in this in Friday's meeting, but District 3 County Supervisor Kristen Gaspar um, has been a big skeptic of the uh, sort of push to fund more public transit and not uh, freeway expansions. Uh, she's a Republican. She uh, sits on the Sand Act board now, but she's up for reelection in November, and Uh, Her challenger, Tara Lawson Reamer, has been uh, much more supportive of this vision to sort of try and transition away from just automobile infrastructure. And so, you know, a a flip in that seat would mean not only that Gaspar would lose her seat on the SANDAG board, but it would also create a majority on the County Board of Supervisors which would mean that they could pick their representatives to Sandag and would likely appoint someone else other than Jim Desmond, who I mentioned earlier, is a big skeptic of this uh, vision as well.
3: The point you're making is that all of our regional leaders who are appointed to this board are the ones who are going to basically decide if it goes to the voters or not. And um so it will affect some of the November elections coming up for some of these leaders, won't it? But specifically you mentioned the county supervisors, perhaps the mayor's race, North Carolina. Yeah, races. and the
7: mayor's race is probably the biggest one. So uh because of a reform to Sandag a few years ago, the mayor has a lot more power now on the Sandag board than uh previously because uh he or she repre- or they represent by far the most number of people in the county. Todd Gloria, the front runner in that race, is very supportive of uh of this vision of um you Know reducing car dependence and and trying to use less uh, freeway widenings. Um, that his challenger Barbara Bree not so much. She said she told the San Diego Union-Tribune um, after the COVID nineteen pandemic the process should be slowed down. And you know to her her point, however, um the process has been slowed down quite a bit already.
3: And I understand that Hassan Ikrata has recently donated to some of the campaigns of the candidates in favor of his plan, right?
7: Well, one of them, yes, he donated to Tara Lawson Reamer, $850 um, for her November uh, challenge to the incumbent, Kristen Gaspar. Um, this is pretty unusual. Uh, we don't usually see um, sort of the heads of agencies um, actively supporting candidates that are challenging their bosses, essentially, because Kristen Gaspar is a member of the board of, uh, of SANDAG and is part of the boss that controls... That agency, and so you know, there was some discussion about that earlier in the in the meeting. And um, Jim Desmond said he was very um, upset by this and thought it was unethical. Um, I think you know whether or not that becomes an issue in that particular race, uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But um, it's definitely an unusual thing, but I would say definitely not uh, illegal and probably not unprecedented.
3: Thank you so much, Andrew.
7: Yes, thank you, Allison.
3: That's KPBS Metro Reporter Andrew Bowen. A more detailed version of the transportation plan will be presented to the Sandag Board in the spring and voted on by the Board in the fall of 2021. Long-term care homes for the elderly have been woefully unprepared for the coronavirus pandemic. Now, wildfire season is here, and an investigation by our colleagues at KQED found these facilities are not prepared for this either. We'll spend some time exploring emergency preparedness and the elderly in a series called Older and Overlooked. KQED reporters April Demboski and Molly Peterson launch our week-long series – and we start with April, looking back at the October 2017 wildfire in Santa Rosa. When the
8: police arrived at the Verena Assisted Living Facility the night of the wine country fires, they saw no caregivers, no managers. Police department! In one residential room after another, they found elderly people fast asleep.
7: Just keep going, open, them, bro. Keep going, Cam.
8: Police body cam footage shows officers helping white-haired ladies in nightgowns out of the building hours after employees left the grounds.
3: Don't send your loved ones here.
8: The same thing was happening next door at the Villa Capri Assisted Living Facility.
2: This is all flying by the seat of your pants.
8: Mark Allen came to get his 89-year-old mother out. When he and his wife Kathy arrived, almost all of the 62 residents were still in their rooms. They found the few overnight staff left in the building.
9: And we asked them if they had an evacuation plan and they said no.
8: The staff didn't know where to take the residents or how to get them out. Mark asked about the big bus outside.
2: Where's the keys? We don't know. Where's the keys to the office? We don't know. Where's the keys for the...
8: Mark and Kathy began carrying people in wheelchairs and walkers down the stairs. Many of them had dementia.
9: They just kept asking what's happening. Are you a first responder? And I'd say no, and then they'd ask again in five minutes.
8: Police arrived around 4 a.m. and helped get the rest of the residents out of Villa Capri. An hour later, it burned to the ground. Mark and Kathy filed a complaint with the State Department of Social Services. The department accused the facilities of violating multiple health and safety regulations. The state moved to revoke their licenses.
2: I felt good. I thought good. Justice is going to be served. People were going to pay the consequences. They are going to get their dues.
8: But the company that owns both facilities, Oakmont Senior Living, appealed. Now, nearly three years later, Villa Capri is rebuilt, and both facilities are open for business, charging seniors up to $10,000 a month to live there. I was just so angry. This is Beth Eurotis Steffi. Her mother was also left behind at Villa Capri. Mark and Kathy got her out. I can't even really put into words how angry I was and how disappointed in a state agency whose job it is to get up every morning and protect people like my mom living in a facility like that. And they failed them. At the time, state law required facilities to have evacuation plans, but they were rudimentary, one-page forms. And Pam Dickfoss, head of licensing at the State Department of Social Services, says these fires were
3: unprecedented. They typically had plans for a fire within their facility, a fire in the kitchen, but not plans
8: to actually evacuate everyone out of the area. Two facilities abandoning around 100 residents? That was unprecedented, too. But instead of shutting them down, the department put both facilities on probation for two years. Dick Foss says regulators don't want to leave residents at risk, but they don't want to leave anyone on the street,
3: either. If we felt the the residents were in danger, you know, we wouldn't have gone that way.
8: California's population is aging. The demand for beds at assisted living facilities is expected to double over the next 20 years, while supply is expected to run out in about 10. Dick Foss says that's why her agency focuses on collaboration rather than punishment.
3: We're being more consultive during our
8: annual inspections now. Beth steffi says her mom, Alice, is still suffering the long-term effects of what happened. There she is. After the fire, Alice was transferred to three different residential facilities before she had a stroke and ended up in a nursing home. You look happy. You need glasses. <laughs> oh. So she's paralyzed on her left side, and she's depressed and she's angry about what's happened to her life the last couple of years, starting with that night. It, it felt terrible, yeah. Like you've really been abandoned. Several people died in the months right after the fire, including Mark Allen's mom. Do you feel like? Yes.
2: Yes, I do feel like she died because of the fire. She wasn't killed by the fire. But because of the fire and the trauma that happened afterwards, it took all the will to live from her.
8: These fires in Santa Rosa were not isolated. The same thing happened the next year in Paradise
2: nursing home that are all non-ambulatory. They're concerned at the moment and unable to reach through 911.
8: My colleague Molly Peterson points out the average age of those who died during the campfire was 72.
5: And climate change has already made wildfires more devastating and disasters more common.
8: There is absolutely um, a colliding of the events of both population aging and climate change. Those two events don't bode well for older adults.
5: Katherine Heyer is a professor in the School of Aging Studies at the University of South Florida.
8: COVID-19 makes the already difficult situation of climate change and aging population worse.
5: There have been outbreaks of the virus in at least 72 percent of the state's nursing homes. Heyer says people in facilities now will have an even harder time deciding how and when to evacuate and where to take shelter.
8: And the problem with COVID-19 is that We're supposed to all be separate from each other.
5: California regulates around 10,000 long-term care homes, from small assisted livings to larger nursing homes. A KQED investigation found that 35 percent of these facilities are located where wildfire is a significant hazard. There's no comprehensive map of those hazards. We mapped them using 1st state-designated fire zones, and adding scientific maps showing where wildlands meet cities. Max Moritz is the statewide fire specialist for the UC Cooperative Extension. He says California needs to adapt to the changing risk.
6: To finally come to a coexistence with wildfire, that is a whole different way of, of thinking and living with a given hazard. It means that we have to be ready for them and we have to look out for the most vulnerable people when they do come.
5: During this pandemic, long-term care homes have failed to care for some of their most vulnerable residents. The same issues that left facilities unprepared for the coronavirus leave these residents vulnerable to wildfire. I'm Molly Peterson.
8: And I'm April Dimboski, KQED News.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit BillHow.com. because we know how.
1: I'm Mark Sauer with Allison St. John. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. America's great poet of snowy evenings and good New England fences may seem an unlikely match with San Diego's beach and sunshine culture. But that's not how the International Robert Frost Society sees it. The Society has found a home at San Diego's downtown Central Library, a permanent center for the study of Frost's work. Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh spoke with San Diego Public Library Director Misty Jones and Jim Hurley, a local writer and businessman, about how they teamed up to bring the center to San Diego. Here's that interview.
9: Now, Jim, it was your idea to bring the Robert Frost Society permanently to San Diego. How were you acquainted with the poet?
10: The condensed version is that I met him in 1959 when I was a writing student and was a guest at the famous Iowa Writers Workshop. And Paul Engel, the founder of that workshop, was acquainted with Frost and invited him to come to Iowa City, and Engel invited a few of uh, the writers at my college to uh, join them. And that's where my uh, adventure with Frost began.
9: Now, we're all familiar with Frost's timeless poetry, but what was he like as a person?
10: He was uh, steel and velvet. That's borrowing a line from Carl Sandburg in his biography of Lincoln, but I can't think of a better description of him he, he was kind he loved students even uh, at the age of 21 i could tell that he loved to teach and he loved uh, student poets and writers and he was also gruff uh, sometimes not only on the edges but he blended that in some way that made him magnetic uh, and i think those two characteristics are mixed into his poems as well.
9: Now, after many years, Jim, you wrote a piece for the Frost Society quarterly about your encounter with poet Robert Frost. And then you asked the society how you could do more. What did they tell you?
10: Well, Jonathan Barron, uh, who at the time was both the editor of the Robert Frost Review and the head of the society, confessed after a few exchanges that Although the society which had been founded in 1978 was very well known in academic circles, it didn't have a sense of place uh, and it didn't have the wide range of uh, reach that perhaps it might deserve. So I asked him if I could uh, be of help in this and maybe see if we could find a permanent home someplace here in the area. And uh, he said, absolutely. Let's give it a try.
9: Now, Misty, did it at first seem incongruous to you to have the San Diego Library become the home of the Robert Frost
11: Society? For me, it was really kind of a no-brainer when, when it was brought forward. San Diego Public Library has a rich history of supporting writers. We've done a lot with local authors, we've done a lot of writing workshops and poetry workshops, and I cannot think of a better way to continue to promote you know, what libraries do for literacy than to have someone as significant as Robert Frost have a place um, in San Diego.
9: Misty, what items will the library house as part of the Society's collection?
11: We have some items from different collectors Um, who have really been collecting, you know, uh, books or poetry from Frost, um, documents, and they've generously donated those materials to us. And so I think it's going to be a series of donations as we move forward and really grow this collection.
9: So these are the real items. These are things that scholars can't find on the Internet and and would, would kind of have to come to the center to be able to study. Is that right?
11: Yes. So it is... A lot of primary documents. So letters from Frost, um, different documents, writings of his. So it will be really unique for those scholars and those that are really interested in learning more about him.
9: Jim, I wonder if I could ask you to perhaps recite a bit from one of your favorite Frost poems.
10: It'd be a pleasure. Uh, This is Tree at My Window. Tree at my window window tree my sash is lowered when night comes on but let there never be curtain drawn between you and me vague dream head lifted out of the ground and thing next most diffuse to cloud not all your light tongues talking could be profound but tree i have seen you taken and tossed And if you have seen me when I slept, you have seen me when I was taken and swept and all but lost. That day she put our heads together. Fate had her imagination about her. Your head so much concerned without her, mine with inner weather. Isn't that nice?
9: It was. Thank you very much. That's from. Uh, that is the Robert Frost poem, "Tree at My Window." What is it about Robert Frost poetry, Jim, that speaks to you?
3: Well,
10: Bob Haas, who, who's the great head of the society now and a fine writer in his own right, has a book uh, that is called "Going by Contraries" about Frost and science, and Bob says that Frost. What he, had, what he calls a poetic vernacular that aspired to the rhythms of common speech. And I think that just captures it. And I, I think that's what captures people at all levels of learning, is that rhythmic, that cadence, that seizure of simple things into verse. Uh, that's what captured me the first time I heard Frost's poems in uh, junior high school in Waterloo, Iowa, and it's still what captures me.
9: Now, Misty, I know that the pandemic shutdown delayed the grand opening you were planning of the Robert Frost Society at the Central Library. What are your plans now to introduce the new center to the public?
11: The first thing that we're doing, we've done a lot of press releases, so really letting people know that this is coming. I'm looking forward and hoping that we will be reopened soon. (laughs) And that we can do we can do a introduction the right way and the way that it should be done and really celebrating that uh, this is an addition. For now, what we're planning on doing is continuing to engage people online, um, letting them know, promoting Frost's poetry, and really you know getting the word out that this is coming, so that when we are open, we'll be ready to invite those people to come in and experience those materials and really planning some, some very interesting and exciting new programming.
9: Jim, how do you see the Frost Society Center being used by those who visit the Central Library?
10: As Misty said, there are already many, many programs that attract uh, poets and writers to the library, but this will add a, an additional, and we hope, powerful magnetic force to bring people in to study poems and to study poetry at all levels of learning. And I think if we succeed in doing that, and I know we will, it will broaden the reach of poetry uh, into the community.
1: That was Jim Hurley and Library Director Misty Jones speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air, and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit BillHow.com because we know how.